sweet time with their family on Mother's Day. They let me in on the family lunch and it was really a joy uh, to see the, meet the family and to enjoy some fellowship with them. And I do bring you again the greetings tonight of our congregation back in Sacramento. had the opportunity to see my wife and my own family by FaceTime or Zoom or whatever it is we use nowadays. Quite remarkable to think that you can do that and enjoy uh, not only hearing their voices, but seeing their faces and uh, having some fellowship with them. This morning, we considered what the gospel is. Tonight, we're going to think about what the gospel does. And to help us, we're going to turn to one of my favorite books in the whole of the Bible, the book of Acts. So please turn to the Acts of the Apostles and to the 16th chapter. When I find my heart dull and I find my spirit discouraged, I sometimes just take out my Bible and open up the book of Acts and start to read it. Because in the book of Acts, we have action that God is doing in the world by His Spirit and through His Word And I'm convinced that one of the reasons God has given us this revelation is to encourage us regarding the power of the gospel in the world to change lives and the power of the gospel to build the church. And when you're a pastor and you sometimes get tired and you sometimes get weary and you look at the hardness of human hearts, uh, the book of Acts is a great place to go. Because here in the book of Acts, we see the ministry of the Word spreading throughout the world. We see the work of the Spirit moving beyond Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and the whole part, all the parts of the earth uh, that we now enjoy uh, seeing God's work at uh, in our generation. And this has been God's purpose from before the foundation of the world, that in Christ the world would be saved. And we rejoice that in the world, God is at work saving a people for himself to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I find the book of Acts a reviving book, a renewing book, a refreshing book, uh, a recovering book for my soul. And I hope tonight that that will be what the Lord will do for you as we look tonight at what the gospel does We saw what the gospel is this morning, now we're going to think about what the gospel does. And we're going to look at it particularly in Acts 16, and specifically in the conversion of the Philippian jailer. But to get the context, I'd like to have you read with me from verse 6 of Acts 16, so that we can see something of the wider context of this remarkable work of grace that God does in this man's life through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's read together. Acts 16 will commence at verse 6. Now when they, that is Paul and Silas, had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. After they had come to Mysia, they tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them. So passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. Now after he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. Therefore, sailing from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, and the next day came to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is the foremost city of the part of Mas- that part of Macedonia, a colony. And we were staying in that city for some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went out of the city to the riverside, where prayer was customarily made. And we sat down and spoke to the women who met there. Now, a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshipped God. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. And when she she and her household were baptized, she begged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. So she persuaded us. 
Now, it happened as we went to prayer that a certain slave girl possessed with a spirit of divination met us, who brought her masters much profit by fortune-telling. This girl followed Paul and us and cried out, saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to us the way of salvation. And this she did for many days. But Paul, greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out that very hour. But when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. And they brought them to the magistrates and said, These men, being Jews, exceedingly trouble our city. And they teach customs which are not lawful for us, being Romans, to receive or observe. Then the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates tore off their clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. And when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into, the prison, into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. Having received such a charge, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were loosed. The keeper of the prison, awaking from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. But Paul called with a loud voice saying, Do yourself no harm, for we are all here. Then he called for a light, ran in and fell down, trembling before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? So they, they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes. And immediately he and all his family were baptized. Now when he had brought them into his house, he set food before them. And he rejoiced having believed in God with all his household. Amen. Let's pray together. Our gracious Father, we give you praise tonight for who you are and for what you have done and continue to do in and through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you that it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. We come to you this evening, O God, desiring afresh that you would teach us something of the beauty of the gospel, something of the wonder of the gospel, something of the, the greatness of the gospel, that we would be refreshed and revived in our souls regarding the power of the gospel, that we as your people would desire to live according to the gospel and to proclaim the gospel, that many would come and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and turn from their sin. We bless you and we praise you tonight, Father, for this account that you've given us of the power of the gospel in one sinner's life. We ask now that as we would examine it together, as we would think upon it together, that we would see what the gospel does, and it would encourage us afresh. We know, Father, those of us who are your children, that the gospel does change our lives and changes everything. We pray now that you would remind us of this, even as we come to your word tonight. We ask, Lord, if there be any amongst us this evening who are yet strangers to your grace and who have never yet believed the gospel, that, Father, you would bring them from darkness to light this evening, that they would believe in your Son, Jesus Christ, and turn from their sins for your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. What the gospel does. That's what I want us to think about tonight as we turn to this portion of God's Word in the book of Acts. There are four truths that I want to draw out from this portion of Scripture here with regards to the conversion of the Philippian jailer. Four truths that I think will help us to see something of the power of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I trust will encourage you then uh, to recognize how important it is for us not only to be believing the gospel, but to be speaking the gospel uh, to those that we have opportunity uh, to, to know and to speak with. Uh, the reality for us is this as Christians, as we said this morning, 
the church is the divinely ordained agency of God to make disciples of the nations. And the making of disciples in the nations only comes about through the proclamation of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So if we do not proclaim the gospel, we do not fulfill our purpose as the church, we are disobeying the Lord, and we will not be used of God. I'm sure all of you want to be used of the Lord at some level to see others come to faith in Jesus Christ. And tonight, as we turn to this familiar portion of God's Word, perhaps to a number of us, I want us to think then about the conversion to Christ of the Philippian jailer. The first point that I want us to consider together is the background to this jailer's conversion. We, we read the wider context in order to help us to set this account of God's grace into its context. And we see here that this conversion to Christ takes place in the city of Philippi. The city of Philippi is identified by Luke here in Acts as a Roman colony. It was a bit of an outpost, if you will, of the Roman Empire. We know that our, the Apostle Paul has been uh, supernaturally called to go here with the gospel. It's very interesting in the opening section of this portion of Acts how Paul had other ideas. Paul had other plans. The Scriptures tell us that Paul tried to go in a different direction, but it doesn't tell us exactly how the Spirit of the Lord stopped him. It simply says that he tried to go to Galatia, but they were forbidden by the Spirit to preach the Word in Asia. That just simply is telling us in many ways that the providence of God somehow hindered him from going in this direction because God wanted him to go in a different direction. The Scriptures tell us that he tried to go then to Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit him. It doesn't tell us how the Spirit did not permit him. It just tells us that the Spirit didn't permit him. He didn't go in that direction. Why? Because God was directing Paul to Philippi. God was directing Paul to mainland Europe. And in many ways, what happens here in this portion of Scripture in Acts it brings the gospel, if you want to call it this, our direction. Because most of us have probably got some measure of European stock in us. Some of us know our stock. Some Americans would like to know their stock, and they're still trying to figure it all out. But the reality is, well, the gospel basically came west through the Apostle Paul, directed by the sovereign hand of God. Paul's trying to go one way. God says, no, you're going to go this way. He reveals it to him in a dream. And what is we, we learn in verse 10? They concluded, as a result of the providential hindrances of God, as a result of the supernatural revelation of God, they concluded the Lord has called us to preach the gospel to them. That is the Macedonians. That is those where Philippi is. This is important for us to see because what we discover here with regards to God's salvation is that God's in control. God's ruling over all the affairs of men. Even the preachers of the gospel who think they should go in one direction end up going in a different direction because God is sending them that way. We must never forget that when it comes to the salvation of grace and the salvation of God and the building of the church, we're not in control. God is in control. And we need to realize that. We need to be aware of that. Now, that doesn't mean for one second that we have no responsibility. It doesn't mean for one second that we're not involved. The wonderful thing about the gospel work of God is that we are the agents. We are the means that the sovereign God uses. And so here's Paul and Silas. They come to the Roman colony of Philippi, uh, the foremost city, verse 12 says, of that part of Macedonia. That means it's a place of hustle and bustle. That means it's a place of activity, commerce, trade, industry, all of it. And, and the reality is that Paul is coming into a busy town, a busy city. And what do we discover? We discover that Paul then decides to seek out people, first of all, who may have some interest in the things of God. And what does he do? Well, he goes down to the riverside. 
I'm not sure that we would say this was going to become Riverside Baptist Church, but the reality is they go down to the riverside, and what do they find? They find that there are women there praying. Then there's a particular woman praying. Her name is Lydia. She's a businesswoman. She's a woman of commerce. She's a woman of ingenuity. She's, she's got a measure of wealth. And what do we find here? We find here that this woman has her heart open just a, a quiet opening of our heart, like a flower, just opens. The work of the Spirit in our soul, quietly and obtrusively, to cause her to hear the words of Paul and become a Christian. Paul's first evidence of God's blessing is a woman, Lydia. And she's going to play a remarkable role in the planting of the church at Philippi. And the apostle Paul uh, sees this, she's converted, and what do we find? She's baptized, and obviously her household, uh, I don't think that's her babies or children, by the way, although some would argue that, I'm pretty confident they are adult servants and people who worked in her household. She's clearly a woman of means, right? She's got a nice big house, it seems. And so what do they do? They start to meet in her house. She invites them in. She shows hospitality. She wants the saints to come and be with her in her home. And what do we find? She invites the apostle Paul to go. And notice verse 15. I like that little phrase. She persuaded us. So Paul's not really sure, and she's going, oh, come on. Oh, you've got to come and stay at my house. You can imagine the, the dynamics of all of that. And so Paul, uh, with Silas, they go, they settle down into her home. They begin to do the work of the gospel. They're going to be here for many days. What do we find? They're going out to pray. And now there's another little, there's a little girl. There's a little girl who's possessed with a demon. And what do we find? She comes and pursues Paul. Paul engages with the supernatural dynamics of the situation and delivers, sees her delivered from the demon possession. And what happens? Well, we can say here what happens is all the trouble of the day breaks open. Because when the gospel begins to affect the economy, people don't like it. When it starts to hit their pocketbook, people don't like it. So there's a reaction, a reaction to the conversion of this little girl. What happens here is this, that the, the men who were making money from this little girl who were exploiting her get angry and now begin to go after Paul and Silas. Evangelism's dangerous. Church planting is dangerous. Preaching the gospel is dangerous. We have to realize that not everybody's going to like us. Not everybody's going to love us. Not everybody's going to want to hear what we have to say. But here the apostle Paul and Silas, they are preaching the gospel. God is blessing the preaching of the gospel. What happens? They get into trouble in the city. They get into trouble. They get arrested. They get beaten up. Now I have to confess, if this is like going to San Francisco, I'm staying in Sacramento, right? San Francisco is a scary city to preach the gospel in. Many have tried to get into that city with the gospel, and there are a few gospel works in there, but they're hard, it's tough, it's difficult. You say to someone in our church, you want to go plant a church in Sacramento, they're not clapping their hands going, that's a great idea, let's go. Because they realize it's a hard place. There are cities that are hard places, but nevertheless... The gospel must go forward. Paul is where God wants him to be. And the background then to the, the Philippian jailer's conversion is what? It is actually the establishing of a church in Philippi. God is already at work saving sinners and establishing a church before he ever brings the Philippian jailer into the picture. The apostle Paul is now beaten and put in prison. And what's very interesting when you study the life of the Apostle Paul, he never says he's been put in prison for any other reason than he's a prisoner of Jesus Christ. He's always Jesus' prisoner. He always understood that wherever he was put in prison, it wasn't really the magistrates that were in control. Jesus had put him in there for a reason. And when you look at what happens here, it's really amazing. 
The Apostle Paul's grasp of the sovereignty of God in his life and the purpose of God in the gospel was such that even when he's beaten up and thrown in prison, he knows that this is all the hand of God. And he's convinced of it. He's persuaded of it. So much so that verse 25 tells us at midnight, when he should have been sleeping, I would imagine, although Paul did preach at midnight sometimes, what do we find in prison? Paul's not sulking. He's not in a huff. He's not bitter against God. He's not thinking, oh no, I've done it all wrong. He's singing hymns to God. He's praising the Lord. He's exalting the name of God. He's got blood on his back. His body's a mess. He's in this, I mean, you can imagine, it's not kind of like the prison cells of the 21st century in America, right? This is a dingy, horrible, stinking place. And he's in shackles, and he's been beat up. But what's he doing? He's singing hymns to God. And he knows, you see, there's other prisoners there, and they're listening to him. Now, when I get to glory, I want to ask Paul, what were you singing? What was the psalms you were singing? What were the hymns you were singing? Were you singing Psalm 110? Were you singing Psalm 2? Were you singing Psalm 22? I'd love to know. We just simply know that Paul is worshiping God. He's extolling God when he's in the prison cell. Think about that. We complain when the shower isn't working very well. And Paul's praising God when he's in jail for Jesus. And what do we then find? We find then that in prison, he's been put in there. Remember, use your sanctified imagination as best you can. He's been put in there by the jailer, right? He's handed over to the Philippian jailer. So the Philippian jailer sees this little uh, Jewish man uh, who's been brought in. He's been beat up. He's bleeding. Uh, he, He doesn't care. He just puts him in the stocks. He throws him in the cell. And now he's hearing him singing. And he's like, turn the light off. I'm off to bed. Silly little man. Who are these guys? You can imagine in reality what was really going on here, right? What we have to understand as well about the Philippian jailer is it's quite likely he's an ex-Roman soldier. He's probably a bit of a tough character, right? It was not unusual for the jailers of that time to be veterans of the the military. Maybe even veterans who've been kind of discharged in a kind of dishonorable way. So these are rough characters. They're not the nice guys, right? This guy's going to be a hard character, a tough character. He's taking his job seriously because he's, he's, he's aware that he's got to do it seriously because to not do it seriously could even bring about his own execution, right? The draconian rules and regulations of Roman military law were such that you could easily be taken out and executed for not doing your duty. And so here's this preacher of the gospel, Paul, and his friend and co-laborer, Silas, and they've been brought in as troublemakers in the city. They've been punished already. Now they're in the stocks. Now they're in the cells. But they're singing. They're singing. And they're praising God. And and this Philippian jailer is engaged with these these two men who he's heard about, no doubt, and now he's, he's been told have to be restrained in the cell. Here we see the mysterious hand of God in the conversion of one sinner. Here we see the remarkable providence of God orchestrating the events, managing the situation. Why? Because God is going to bring the word of God to this man. God is going to orchestrate everything so that this man, this Philippian jailer, is going to hear the gospel of Jesus. Now, you and I would never write this. You and I would never orchestrate this. This is not the way we would think about this. But we're reminded, aren't we, you see, that we're not in control. God's writing the story. God's writing the narrative. God's doing the work. We mustn't be surprised that there is much that we don't understand and there is much that is mysterious here. But what is God doing? He's bringing the word of God to the Philippian jailer through 
his agent, the Apostle Paul and Silas. He's going to bring this man to faith in Christ and join him to the Philippian local church. It's amazing. The background to this whole event of the Philippian jailer's conversion. That brings us to the second consideration, the circumstances of, his, of the jailer's conversion. The circumstances, and we really get this in verses 25 through 27. The Philippian jailer is hearing these men sing praises to God. Perhaps he had never even heard of Yahweh. Perhaps he had never heard the name of Jesus yet. Well, he has when he hears Paul. He's going off to his bed. He's putting the lights out. He's thinking, I'll get back to these guys in the morning. They're a bit religiously fanatical, these guys. He's not really paying much attention immediately. But things are about to change rather dramatically. Verse 26 says, Suddenly, unannounced, without any warning, there was a great earthquake. Now, you know I'm from California, right? And they keep telling us the big one's coming. The big one's coming. And so far, I've only, heard, I've only felt two very small earthquakes in California. The last one wasn't too long ago, and it lasted about 15 seconds, and it was a little bit more interesting than the first one I ever experienced. But I can assure you, I don't want to be there when the big one comes. 15 seconds of rolling ground was bad enough. But here it says, this was a big one. The big one came. The great earthquake came. It came suddenly. It came unannounced, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were loose. Now, let me say this to you. You may never have experienced an earthquake, and that's great. I don't want you to experience an earthquake. The little one that I experienced, it made me feel about this size. It was so scary to realize there is nothing I can do when it starts. I've just got to ride it out. And folks that are in our congregation who've lived in California longer than me who remember some of the bigger ones, the Northridge one in LA, for example, the, the one in, uh, in, in Oakland way back, the one where the Bay Bridge collapsed on top of the, the Bay Bridge. And when I go over the Bay Bridge, I always ask the Lord, not today, Lord, please, let's get me over this in 10 minutes. Because we're 400 feet above the bay, and that's just a terrifying thought of how to die. I'd rather just die in my bed singing hymns with my family. That would be great. But here's the reality, right? When an earthquake strikes, it is a terrifying experience. And when an earthquake strikes, we are completely powerless. And when an earthquake comes, it's unannounced. You don't know it's coming until it's actually happening. And that's exactly what's taking place here. This man goes off to his bed, thinking, I'll see these religious guys in the morning, and suddenly the whole building is shaking, and, and the doors are opening, and his life is about to be completely turned on its head by the hand of God. This is the hand of God. This is the power of God. This is the providence of God. And what do we see in verse 27? The keeper of the prison, awaking from his sleep, and there's no doubt he wasn't sleeping through the great earthquake. That wasn't happening. You can imagine if the place is falling apart and the bed is bouncing, the reality is he's going to be wakened up. He's wakened up and he sees that the prison doors are opened and then he draws a conclusion that's a wrong conclusion. Supposing the prisoners had fled, he draws his sword to kill himself. Now, that's a, that's a very interesting little bit of detail. Why does he do this? Well, if you remember in a couple of other places in Scripture where prisoners escaped from their jails, those who were meant to be guarding them were held responsible. You usually were put to death. He, he decided he would save the authorities the bother. He would just kill himself because everybody's gone. And now he's going to be executed anyway. So he decides to end his life. He decides that it's over. There's no point. And so here's this man. He's in a despairing situation. He's, he's facing an earthquake. He's facing the reality of the prison being emptied. He's facing the reality of being put to death. And he decides he'll just end it all. There's no hope. There's no point. I might as well kill myself. This is the mindset of this man at this particular point in his life. He is despairing for his own life because of 
the circumstances that have come upon him, dramatic circumstances, sudden circumstances. He's not prepared for these circumstances. And what happens, we find here then that he is determined that he's going to fall on his own sword. We need to be very clear here when we look at the circumstances of this man's conversion that all of this is the hand of God bringing him towards the gospel. All of this is the hand of God drawing him to hear the message of the gospel. You see, we must never doubt that when God is going to save sinners, God is going to move and God is going to do his work. And it cannot fail. It will not fail because God's purposes are sure and certain. And so we see here that this man is being drawn in the providence of God through the dramatic experience of an earthquake, through the terror of the fact that all the prisoners seem to have gone, through the reality of the fact that there's no point in continuing, I might as well end my life now. What is God doing? He's bringing this man to the brink of eternity in his conscience and in his mind to think about the reality of life and death even to the point that he's prepared to end his life in utter despair, utter hopelessness. God in his providence through circumstances is speaking to him. Now, he's drawing some wrong conclusions at this point, as often is the case in unbelief. But nevertheless, what we see here in the circumstances of this man's conversion is that it is the hand of God that is drawing him. It's the hand of God that is working in his life. And it could be that you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, but you've had some interesting and difficult providences to navigate in your life in recent times. may not have been a great earthquake like this one, but maybe you lost your job. That's fairly earth-shattering. Maybe it is you've been told by your doctor you've only got six months to live. That's fairly earth-shattering. There are many different ways God can shake your life without actually just simply giving an an actual earthquake. The ground doesn't have to move literally under your feet for your spirit to be shaken because of your circumstances. You might be saying, well, That's true, there's been some things happening in my life, but I don't think it's God. Well, who else is it? Who else is it? Is it just some fatal, random possibility that it came about? No, not not at all. You see, in God we live and move and have our being. He is the sovereign God. He ordains whatsoever comes to pass. Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes that we are to consider the days of adversity, as well as the days of prosperity, because God has ordained both of them. And when the days of adversity come, we're to consider what is God doing. The days of prosperity, we know what to do. We rejoice in the Lord. That's good that we've got a, we're having a happy season right now. But happy seasons don't always last. Good times don't always last. doesn't matter who you are tonight. At some point, you're going to face a difficult providence, a painful providence, a, a providence that will shake your life. None of us get through this world without having hard, difficult providences. But all of them, in God's purpose, are to draw us toward himself. All of us are to cause us to think upon our latter end. All of, us are to, all of them are designed to cause us to think upon our relationship with our Creator. This man was about to be reckless with his soul because of an earthquake and because of what he perceived to be an empty prison, so reckless he was about to kill himself and usher himself into eternity lost. But God steps in. And God doesn't allow it to happen. God prevents it. And I want to say to you this evening, in terms of the circumstances of your life, do not be reckless with your soul. Do not be reckless with your soul. You are a never-dying soul. It's true that your body will die. And some of us, as we're getting older, we know only too well that's true. Right? When you're younger, you think you're going to live forever. As you get older, you realize you're not. Right? Your body will give up. But your soul will either be with the Lord or in the place of eternal torment until that final day. Do not be reckless with your soul. 
Recognize that there is an eternity coming. Recognize that there is a judgment coming. Recognize the need that you have to be right with God. Here God, at this point, steps in to deliver this man from the recklessness of his own behavior that could destroy him forever in hell. That brings us to the third consideration of our passage. We've seen something of the background to his conversion, something of the circumstance of his conversion. Notice thirdly, the means of this jailer's conversion, the means of his conversion. And we find this in verses 28 through 33. The first means that we see in the text is the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul, who God has called to come to Macedonia, to plant a church in Philippi, who God has ordained to be beaten up and put in prison, he speaks up in the darkness. Paul says, do not harm yourself. We're all here. That's amazing to think about the scene, right? The man's about to kill himself. The Apostle Paul steps in. He's the means of God's bringing the gospel to this man. And he says, stop. Don't do it. Don't harm yourself. I know you think we're all gone, but we're not. We're all still here. I know the doors are all open. I know the earthquake has wrecked the place, but we've not left the prison. Paul steps up, and Paul speaks up, and Paul brings hope to the man who is hopeless. He calls for a light. That is the Philippian. He runs in, and he falls down trembling before Paul and Silas. He knows exactly where he has put Paul and Silas, right, before he went to his bed. He knows exactly the cell that they are in, right? Even in the dark, he knows his prison pretty well, right? And even though the doors are off and the walls are cracked and the place is a mess, he hears Paul, and he runs in, and he falls down trembling before Paul, realizing I believe that there's something bigger going on here than just a couple of religious guys still in a jail cell. Realizing that these men who have been singing the praises of God, who have been put in jail because of the message of God, they're still there, and and, and he's not going to be put to death. and, and, And here he is now, and he's trembling, he's shaking, he's aware of what? Of his need. Of Christ. How do we know? The text tells us, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? I think there's a whole lot more here than we can see just in terms of what is going on in the text. I think that the actual summary of all of this is telling us that this man was aware of the message, that this man realized who these men were in terms of what they were doing, and now he comes in, and the Spirit of God is at work. Of course, he's not mentioned, but he's clearly at work. And what do we find? This man is now trembling with fear that he, that he might then get right with God. That's what's going on. The sovereign hand of God has brought about an earthquake. The sovereign hand of God has shaken the prison. The sovereign hand of God has brought this man to a place of realization that he's not right with God. And the Spirit of God is working in his soul to cause him to realize that he needs to be made right with God. But he's asking the question, how then do I get right with God? And Paul answers him. Paul tells him. Paul explains it to him. So they said, now that's interesting, they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. That's really the gospel in a nutshell again. Now there's a lot to unpack here, right? I don't believe that they just simply said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll be saved. And they didn't say it in unison like it was a chorus, right? They said it, right? Like Paul and Silas are standing there. Ready? Go. I don't think that's what's going on, right? It's Luke's summary of what took place and what was being explained to this man at this critical juncture in this man's life. And what is the means then of the jailer's conversion? It's the minister of the gospel bringing bringing him the gospel, telling him the way of salvation, explaining to him John 3.16 explaining to him the gospel, telling him what the gospel is so that he might experience what the gospel does. 
save him, reconcile him to God, bring him out of his sin into righteousness, deliver him from darkness to light, whatever way you want to put it. The reality is that this man is now on the brink of going through the narrow gate onto the narrow path that is going to lead him to eternal glory. Paul explains to him, I tell you what you need to do in order to be saved. You've got to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, who alone is the only Savior from sin. Now, who knows? Maybe he had heard about the Lydia story. Maybe he knew about the little slave girl. We can't be sure. You can be sure of this, though. He had some idea of it because he was the, he was the, the, the prison uh, cell officer who the magistrates had said, you need to put these guys in prison because of what they've been doing in our city. You would imagine there's some paperwork explaining that, right? These troublesome characters. They've been causing trouble. There's a little slave girl down there and she's not playing ball anymore and it's these guys' fault. Whatever way you want to think about it, the Philippian jailer was aware to some extent of who Paul and Silas were and what Paul and Silas were doing. But now at the critical moment, the means of the jailer's conversion is the ministry of the Spirit in his heart accompanied by the ministry of the Word from the word, the mouth of the Apostle Paul that brings about his conversion to Christ. And what do we see in the passage? Then they spoke the Word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. I believe that there was more going on here. They were explaining more. Look, when you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're turning to God through faith in Christ. You're turning away from your sinful life. So there's repentance involved. Not only that, but you need then to be baptized as evidence that you're actually going to follow Jesus. You need to identify with Christ. What do we find? It's Matthew 28 being fleshed out. They're making disciples of the nations by preaching Christ and baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And then what are they going to do? They're going to tell them, and now you need to observe all things whatsoever Christ has commanded. And by the way, there's a group in Philippi already doing it. I'm going to introduce you to Lydia and to this little slave girl and to her household. She's got a really nice house down by the river, by the way. We're already staying there. This is what's going on here. God is building the church. God is building the church. When you get time, you go home tonight, read Paul's letter to the Philippians. And read it against the backdrop of all of this. And it's, it, it's wonderful to think that Paul would write what he writes years later back to Philippi so that Lydia, the little slave girl, the Philippian jailer, their households would all hear, having begun a good work in you, I am convinced he will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Rejoice in the Lord always. Can you imagine the impact that verse had on the Philippian jailer when he thought back to his conversion and Paul and Silas in the jail on that night, bleeding in the stocks. And what were they doing? Rejoicing in the Lord always. He had an object lesson of it in the life of the apostle Paul. Rejoice in the Lord always. Oh, I remember the night of the great earthquake when God saved me. I remember those two guys who I thought were off their head singing praises to God at midnight when I went to my bed. I thought, what are they rejoicing in? What have they got to rejoice over? Until then I heard the message of eternal life through Jesus Christ. And that night I came myself to believe in Jesus Christ and turn from my sin and be saved. But not only me. Notice what happens here. The movement of the Spirit is wonderful to see. The whole household whole household become Christians. The whole household trust in the Lord. They spoke the word of the Lord, not just to him, but to the whole household. What does that indicate? That at some point they moved out of the cell. At some point, the, other, the rest of the household who had also been woken up by the earthquake are all gathering round. And now it's turned into a full-blown evangelistic meeting. And Paul is giving it to them and Silas is giving it to them. And the jailer is believing it and his family are believing it. His household are believing it. The gospel has come to the Philippian jailer and his household. And it's changed their life forever. It's changed their life forever. That brings us to the fourth and final thing. We see here in this text very clearly the fruit or the outcome 
of the jailer's conversion. You see, this man has come to believe in Jesus Christ. He's come to understand the work of Christ. He's come to understand the person of Christ as it's been explained to him by the Apostle Paul and by Silas. He's come to realize that Jesus Christ is the only Savior from sin, that he's the only mediator between God and man. He's come to understand that Jesus Christ has lived a righteous life and died a sacrificial death and risen from the dead and ascended into heaven where he is right now at the right hand of the Father. And he's coming again in his glory to judge the nations and usher us into a new heavens and a new earth. And the Apostle Paul has laid it out for him and he has believed the gospel. And we're going to see how, he's going to, how his life is transformed, how he turns from his sins, and how he begins to be new creation in Christ Jesus. And how do we see it? Well, it tells us in the text. Verse 33, and he took them the same hour of the night, and he washed their stripes. Think about this, the tender touch of the rugged Philippian jailer because of the grace of God. It's amazing. He washed their stripes, and immediately he and all his family were baptized. So they've got to get Paul at least able to be feeling a bit better before they can baptize, right? So, so they, they get Paul fixed up. That's the fruit. They're beginning now to see the fruit of repentance. Paul realizes this man has really been changed. This man has really been transformed. Not too long ago, he was sticking me in the, in, in the stocks, and he was not interested in anything I had to say, and he was basically off to his bed. Now, he's bringing me out of the stocks. He's bringing me to have my stripes washed. He's showing me hospitality. Here's an evidence of a man whose life has turned around. Here's the repentance of grace in his life. Here's the transformation of the work of the Spirit. And it goes on to tell us more than that. After they're baptized, what happens? Now, when he had brought them into his house, he set food before them, and he rejoiced, having believed in God with all his household. Here is conversion. Not very long before this, this man is going this way. He's heading for destruction. He's on the very edge of eternity. He's going to kill himself and end up in hell. God turns him around and he sends him this way and there's the repentance of grace. And now here he is. He's bringing the apostle Paul into his house. He's, healed, he's, he's fixing his stripes. He gets baptized, which means he's confessing faith in Jesus Christ and repentance from sin and, and, and union with Christ. And, and now he shows Paul hospitality. Come on. I want you to come in and I'm, I want you to really enjoy the hospitality of my home. And he's rejoicing in the grace of God. My dear brothers and sisters, there should be evidence of grace in our lives if we're truly repentant and truly believing. There should be evidence of transformation if there's a real work of the Spirit. We see it here, don't we? We see the transformation of this man. We see the hospitality, the kindness of this man. We recognize that this man is new creation because of the work of the Spirit. This is true conversion right here. It might well be this evening that as you think upon this, you realize that you might know who Jesus is, but you've never bowed to Jesus as Lord. You might be aware of what Jesus does, but you've never truly trusted in Christ yourself and, and, and turned from your sinful way of life. My dear friend, I exhort you tonight. Your only hope for the forgiveness of your sins and peace with God is Jesus Christ and him crucified. You must believe in him and you must forsake your sin. The evidence is that you've truly believed in Jesus is that your life is changing by the grace of God. You're not what you once were, or you know that you're not what you should be, but you're not what you once were. You are what you are, though, by the grace of God. And you're growing in your knowledge of Christ, and your love for Christ, and your delight in Christ, and you're growing in your hatred for sin, and your desire not to be plagued by the remaining corruption of the heart, and you desire to love your neighbor as yourself, because that's what you see here, isn't it? Here is a man who's come to love the Lord his God, not perfectly, but sincerely, through believing in Jesus and turning from his sin, and now he wants to show it forth by loving his neighbor, who once was his enemy. You can be sure the Philippian jailer, when Paul came into that prison cell, thought that Paul was crazy. But no longer by the grace of God. No longer by the Spirit of Christ. 
Instead, he wants to bind up his wounds. He wants to have him sit at his table. And we see here that he is rejoicing in the fact that he's come to know the God of whom Paul and Silas had been singing in the prison cell. Here is the evidence of grace. Here is the outworking of grace. Here is the outcome of the jailer's conversion. He is a new creation in Christ Jesus. And it won't be long, I'm sure, before the Apostle Paul will have put him in touch with the rest of the Christians in Philippi that are being saved by the gospel. And the establishing of the church is such that when you get to Philippians 1 verse 1, what do you find? That it was a well-ordered church. They have elders, deacons, and members. The First Reformed Baptist Church of Philippi. You know I'm having a bit of fun when I say that. But it was the true church. This is the church. It's ordered by Christ through the apostles, by the gospel. It's the gospel that did this. It's God that did this. And this is what God does. God saves sinners by the gospel and only by the gospel. So, my dear brothers and sisters, I want to encourage you tonight. I've come all the way from California to do one thing for you, dear brothers and sisters in Holland, Michigan. It's this, to remind you of what the gospel is and what the gospel does so that you'll believe the gospel and you'll proclaim it for the glory of God as a church, as individuals. That God might then come through your witness, through your testimony, and save sinners in this region for his glory. And if he's pleased, add them to your church. Add them to his church for his glory. You see, that's why we exist. There is no other reason why we exist other than to be the divinely ordained disciple-making agency on the earth. And the way we make disciples is by preaching the gospel, by bringing the gospel to the lost. And as you reflect tonight on what the gospel is as you go home, and as you reflect on what the gospel does, be encouraged. It cannot fail. It cannot fail. Because it's God's gospel, and it's God's purpose. And the Bible tells us very clearly that our Lord Jesus Christ, he shall see of the travail of his soul, and he shall be satisfied. And we want to have a part in seeing him satisfied by believing the gospel and by proclaiming the gospel so that many would yet believe the gospel and come into the kingdom of God. May God bless his word to your hearts as you head home this evening. May he use it to refresh you and renew you and encourage you in the most important and most glorious message in the world, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we bless you. We praise you for this.